Welcome to App Talk with Uptick. Each week, we dive into the nitty-gritty of how to grow mobile apps and games. We speak with industry experts about specific strategies, tools, and tactics they use to find success, and we keep you up to date with emerging news and trends in the ever-changing mobile app ecosystem. My name is Xander Agosta, and I'm a growth lead here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick, and our esteemed guest, James O'Clair, uh, co-founder and CEO of Mobileye. Friend of the pod. Awesome. <laughs> so Thanks. glad to have you on today, James. Uh, we've we've known James for years back. I think, you know, I got the pleasure of being like an early beta tester for some of uh, the tools his company has made. And um, we've been wanting to have him on for a while. So excited to dig in. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. I've been listening to your podcast a lot and I uh, really like the insights that have been coming from it. Sweet. Thanks, man. Um, first up, Industry Insights, where we shed some light on mobile trends. Warren, do you want to get started? I know you have an interesting piece. To... Yeah, for sure. So I think the first thing we wanted to call out, this is more um, a resource than a news article. So, uh, you know, we every week we're waiting for it to be the first week we don't talk about ATT. Uh, in iOS 14.5, it will not be this week. Uh, so a resource I wanted to call out, this was made by AppsFlyer uh, actually. So this is something called the AppsFlyer uh, uh, ATT dashboard. Um, so some of the questions that a lot of our clients and colleagues have right now are things like, uh, you know, what percentage of apps um, have implemented this framework? Uh, what percentage of users uh, are actually like upgrading to iOS 14.5? And all of these stats are going to be affecting a marketing performance in different ways. Um, and, and we need to sort of like set uh, be on the same page of what this adoption is like. So AppsFire created a pretty cool tool. Um, it looks like they're updating once a week. It's like this living dashboard and it's got stats. You can drill in by a genre and see like for uh, games in um, United States, uh, you can see some of these key stats about adoption rate. Um, and uh, this will let you do some cool things. Like one thing we know um, with users that are, uh, as users upgrade to iOS 14.5, they'll be less trackable in traditional um, UA attribution. So this can give us some indicators of like how much lost revenue or lost installs to expect in some of this um, uh, in some of this uh, data. So um, some good kind of like high level takeaways from this: um, about 15% uh, implementation of of apps overall has taken place of um, implementing the framework in gaming. That's up to about 18%. Um, then as far as like actual users, uh, what we're seeing in gaming is about 9% of users, uh, according to this uh, resource, have upgraded to iOS 14.5. So um, I guess I'll stop there. Um, James, Xander, I think you guys have both glanced at this resource. I'm curious uh, what you think the usefulness of this is, if you saw any other stats in here that you thought were interesting. For sure, the biggest one that has jumped out at me is the, like you said, the 9%. Um, I've also been looking at the Remerge dashboard, which is somewhere around like 5 or 6% right now. And that's adoption rate of users to iOS 14 or 14.5.1. And uh, it's just kind of interesting that it's, so it's such a slow adoption rate. I kind of expected it to be a little bit faster um, already two, three weeks in. So I think it's actually giving everybody quite a bit of breathing room to um, get things even more ready than they were a couple of weeks ago. 
Yeah, it's a little bit more of this. I mean, this is a super useful resource and we'll link both the AppSpire dashboard as well as the Remerge adoption dashboard in the show notes. Um, but I think that this continues a trend we've seen for the past couple of weeks since iOS 14 launched that, you know, we're seeing a very slow adoption period. And it's actually, you know, it's a really good thing, I think, for a lot of people because one, it gives the industry some time to catch up, but also it means our tactics still work and we're able to basically operate our business as usual. And we're, I, mean, I think, you know, taking a take opportunity, of, at least for several of our major clients, we're being able to really leverage that opportunity um, pretty significantly now, which is something that I think is great. Yeah, I also think that could be a danger, though, for some people that um, because things are there was no huge change, it can be kind of like the frog in the hot water, right, where True. things are going to change so slowly over time that you could be lulled and saying, actually, we don't need to do anything, we can just keep things exactly as they are. Um, and it won't be till it's too late that you realize that actually there's been a, a big shift taking place. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think, you know, we're really cognizant of that fact and we're trying to really quickly advance a lot of our technology and our tactics to really be prepared for that. And I definitely encourage the rest of the ecosystem to do that as well. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a good call out and point. Yeah, when it's just creeping up by like one or two percent a day, it's a lot less. Uh, like you know, if 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 it's just like we couldn't use the old data at all, that would imply like a very different kind of approach than like uh, there's just one percent less available than yesterday. Well, and, mm-hmm. and we actually expect I think a, a hockey stick curve at some point, right? So mm-hmm. I to be very clear, Apple will push this at some point, and when that happens, we expect to see this number jump to a seventy or eighty percent adoption. I'm guessing within a very very short period, you know, several days to a week. At that point, you better be ready because it's going to happen. Yeah, that's a great point, Xander. Cool. Cool. Want to go to the next story? Yeah. Um, so next story is a bit of an interesting one. If you've been following the space at all, this shouldn't be a huge surprise to you. But the headline is Stillfront Group acquires Game Labs, which is a for uh, thirty-two point five million dollars. And there's, you know, I read about this. This is a uh, it's a company that's headquartered in Delaware, but they seem like they have several offices around the globe. Um, and it's a it's a thirty-person company, so they have a thirty-two million dollar. Uh, you know, purchase price plus a $30 million potential earnout over the next several months. So it's not a terrible, you know, price tag for a very small company. Um, you know, if you've been following the space at all, this shouldn't be particularly surprising. Stillfront's been gobbling up mobile companies left and right. And, you know, really becoming one of the leaders in terms of just, you know, unifying all these studios under one roof. So the thing that was really interesting for me is this is actually not a mobile developer. It's a PC focused developer with a focus on, you know, mid-core strategy and action games. So it appears that, you know, Stillfront's expanding their strategy from mobile to the broader market. Um, and that's sort of an interest, it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. I think, you know, there's a, probably a play that they're seeing here about thinking about how to go cross-platform and meeting their gamers where they are. Um, so it's just an interesting data point in the fact that they seem to be expanding um, from their traditional strategy. Uh, any thoughts here from either of you guys? Yeah, my first reaction here is just kind of surprise. Um, I, I, you know, we've been tracking. Um, you know, we we know, we know some of the folks in the Stillfront group. They they acquired one of our uh, partners, um, uh, Candy Writer, uh, and I was pulling up this web page. I hadn't researched Game Labs before this call, um, and I was expecting to see you know typical mobile developer. These games actually look really really beautiful and kind of different from what I was expecting. And um, when you said this is a PC developer, Xander, that um, made both more and less sense. <laughs> like it explains uh, kind of the the quality and look and feel of those, these games. And they, they do a lot of, it looks like historical um, strategy and war simulation games, um, but with some really uh, beautiful looking uh, graphics. Um, but it, it kind of begs the question of like, what exactly is the war machine that Stillfront is 
is building. You know, what is what is the lane that they're trying to to carve out? Um, and when it was a lot more focused around um, mobile, um, the narrative is a little more clear. Um, but yeah, I, I'm curious, James. What do you, what do you think? Have you been tracking uh, some of the actions of of Stillfront, uh, M and A, and have you ever heard of this company, Game Labs? Um, and any thoughts on just this this strategy overall of, of starting to fold in more PC developers? Like you said, I, I have definitely heard that they've been acquiring companies, uh, including your uh, previous client. Um, but I'm Current not really client. sure where they're going. With this, <laughs> Unless like... you heard some news that we haven't heard yet. <laughs> oh, was that? Uh, I was just joking, current client, unless you've heard some news that we haven't oh, heard. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I was, I, I mean, I'd be curious if they're going to try to build something else more bigger than um, just acquiring more media properties, because at some point they could start to build some kind of platform that is useful beyond the properties that they can acquire, right? Um, I think that that's the kind of thing that you know, any, any media company that has enough, um, you know, enough uh, of its own media that it can at some point start to build its own uh, platform. So if you look at something like Disney, they can build, they can, uh, they can build a platform because they have so much content to uh, deliver to audiences. And at some point, if Stillfront is, you know, acquiring different, uh, many of these different mobile games and PC games, this is something that they would be interested in offering with some type of platform or something that, like how, how are they delivering, wanting to deliver this content? Right. Yeah, I mean, so I think this is really interesting in the context of the Zynga acquisition of last week, which was they acquired chart boost for $250 million. And so it's an advertising play and there's a pretty clear path there. I mean, Zynga's games have a lot of ads in them. And, you know, you can imagine one of two things, either they siphon off a bunch of those ad users into their own system, or conversely, they're, you, you know, you basically that becomes a serving platform for proprietary Zynga users. Um, you know, I think there one part of this is something that you described where you basically think it's been termed called uh, content fortress to show chauffeur, uh, Eric Sufer's a uh, you know, terminology. Um, but, you know, I think that them, Apple Levin, Zynga, you could imagine that they, you know, the role in the ad colony, or, you know, an ad platform into here, it's one direction to go with this. I think you should call something up that's actually a little bit more interesting, which I hadn't thought of, which is you go a different direction and go towards a subscription-based model or something, and you compete with people like Apple, um, Apple Arcade, which I hadn't thought of as even potentially a possibility, but that is an interesting thought, at least. Yeah, for sure. I think the theme with both of these approaches are like, what are the economies of scale and unique plays you can make once you're not like a, you know, a publisher with with three titles but you have you have this war machine does it mean that you can now start you know building internal ad tech um, and doing things things like that or a content distribution system so I think there's definitely unique advantages to these bundlings of of developers like um, you know we're always focused on the growth side of things so it's like maybe any of these in developers individually can't afford like a full scale growth marketing org in the right tech, but maybe collectively, like they can build like a, a, a mini growth machine inside that greater um, uh, publishing org. It's going to be very interesting to see how these pan out. Right. Cool. Cool. Should we do uh, one more news story or go to our main subject? You guys, for yours, Warren, do you want to you wanna touch on it? All right. We, we were kind of debating on this one, but let's, let's just go for it. So this is not... Um, this is not something in the news, but a development we saw this week, and it kind of uh, falls off of um, uh, something that we 
something that we talked about in the past with, uh, with AppLovin. Um, so we've seen AppLovin acquiring more and more entities and kind of like folding in. It's again, kind of like one of these mega, mega orgs. And uh, one thing we saw this week was that their publishing studio, uh, Lion Studios, actually published uh, an app store that looked a lot like uh, one of, uh, we mentioned them earlier, one of our partners, uh, BitLife, like their app store. And we, we dug into it and it's the apps themselves are pretty different, but uh, it kind of like covered this line it, that, you know, it, it kind of raises one of these questions of what happens when the same companies that are um, working with advertisers um, and have the potentially advertiser data and monetization data when they're also developing apps. Um, and this app, I think it was called like Life Simulator Best Life. Um, and it was uh, the app store at least was modeled after BitLife Life Simulator. And it's kind of this like a uh, very uncomfortable area of um, what happens when you have these potential conflict of interest situations. It could be something where like the right hand's not talking to the left hand and they don't know, like um, the advertising arm of AppLovin might not know that Lion Studios did this somewhat cloned effort. Um, but it really starts, now that we're, we're starting to see the ramifications of when an org like AppLovin starts playing in multiple fields and these conflicts of interest can emerge. So Xander, I know you you saw this as well. You did some some research and uh, and saw some some of the differences. So it's not a straight up clone, but how are uh, I guess I'll love both of your perspectives, um, Xander. Maybe just coming from the, uh, the doing some, doing business with Apple on the UA side. Yeah. What do you what do you think this move? Well, so there's one really important thing you left out, which is that they're actually a Max Ads partner. You know. Candy right. Raider is, which means that they are Max Ads is you know doing a ton of their monetization, all their ad monetization, as well as we we use Appleven for UA. So what that means is you know Appleven has a pretty holistic view into the product overall, um, and you know whether or not this was intentional, they've built what you know the game actually. When I dug into it, it looks pretty functionally different than BitLife, but it's positioned almost exactly the same way in the App Store, and so it's like you know whether or not this was just something that randomly. I mean BitLife's like a top seven app in this category, something like that. So it's like a very popular app, whether or not this was just um, a coincidence that, that uh, client studios, hey, we're going to develop a simulation game because that's popular or they're looking, you know, they're looking at data, you know, Max Ads has the data, you know, they see the UA data doing, hey, this is an app that's doing well. And they're saying, oh, we should clone that. Um, and then building, spinning it out and building it in one of the studios. I mean, that's the much more nefarious take. Now, whether or not that's happening, right. I mean, it's hard for us to sell. Yeah, that's like the tinfoil hat version. Um, my gut is it's my gut is it's actually probably something where like the right hand's not talking to the left, and there's some team that's been tasked with you know market market our apps, like analyze the apps in the top ten and and build stores that are modeled after those apps or. I really don't know. And I would definitely open the, before like hurling out a bunch of accusations, I would definitely open the door to anyone that's got a, a into senior folks at Apple 11 to come on and discuss the strategy um, and uh, give the platform, help us understand why something like this isn't a con conflict of interest. Um, and we'll definitely give the benefit of the doubt if anyone from Apple 11 team wants to come on and, and speak about um, trends like this that either exist or, or uh, might exist in the future. James, do you have any thoughts on, on this situation? Uh, as one of our colleagues recently uh, posted an article about, and it his tagline there was, good artists copy, great artists steal. Um, I think that, you know, to defend Apple a little bit, like it is okay to, you know, copy other people's works in the sense that if you are adding something to it and you 
you've taken what is already a good idea and you're trying to make it better. You're trying to make some change there. Um, I think what the most important thing is, as you mentioned, the conflict of interest there in that they have, you know, they, since they own some of the rails, they can un have an unfair advantage to move forward with, uh, you know, promoting their own uh, version, which maybe is not better than the, the, the original. So I'm, I'd be very curious to see what they're doing there. Um, I'd also be curious to see if any of this kind of stuff gets brought up at all in the um, SEC filing that they right. did. I didn't actually read that. I'm not sure if you read it, but sometimes there can be very clear uh, language about these types of strategies in those filings. I read a bunch of it, but it's like 100 pages. You know, there's only so much you can do. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I to be clear, like the game does look different. Like it, it didn't look like particularly. BitLife is a really well developed app and has like pretty good metrics. Yeah, um, we should be clear. This is not a situation where like someone's code was stolen and like yeah. the app was cloned. This is more of like I said, it's similar to like if they copied someone's ad. Like right, and I think that's the thing is like the app store is positioned very interesting. The thing that just like it makes it smell bad is the fact that they have access to so much of the internal data and both from the monetization side as well as user acquisition side. And so that's what makes it, and that's why why like Apple is such a formidable force and it's like scary. And that's why, you know, supersonic and iron source is scary. It's because you don't like, there's no, there's nothing protecting, stopping people from doing that. That's what, and also to the point we we're making a second ago about like, the conscience forces, fortresses and still front, like that is why it's such a powerful place because it gives you this leverage that individual developers don't have. And so, you know, you know, I would love for Apple to come on to the, uh, come on to the show and talk to us. You know, I've, I've been, I reached out to them and I tried to get, get them on once before and they, they turned us down. But, um, you know, I think that it's something that it's going to need to be addressed at some point. Um, and at some point it's going to be, you know, it, it looks kind of like Amazon competing with their own retailers, you know, yeah, on that's, Amazon. That's a great analogy, Xander. Yeah. And just to make clear, like AppLevin is a, a big partner of, of Upticks. We do not a lot of business with them, but we have to, you know, it feels weird. And we, I think for us as an industry, it'd be good if we can all understand as, as we build these um, like megacorps and mobile with different, with their tentacles in different parts of the business, like what are the boundaries, you know? And and uh, if if someone if 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 doing business with not saying Apple specifically, but with one of these companies that also develop apps, means that there's increased likelihood that uh, your data is used to in some way build a product that is like one of your apps. Um, you know that, that I think affects who we choose to do business and not do business with. But at the same time. Uh... You know, if, if this was like a game like 2048 and everybody builds their clone of it, or this is like a match three game, right? I, I think this is something that's always existed in, in, you know, any kind of artistic endeavors that when somebody hits on a good idea, people replicate it, right? And that's mm -hmm. protected by copyright law. And it's, it's, it's something acceptable, acceptable for a company to do. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that, so like the other side of this is that like, yeah, you can anyone can go play a game and you can go copy a game. There's no, you know, there's no copyright law in code. Like, that's like sort of like a core, a core piece of this. Um, I think the danger is the fact that it's more than just they're going up and looking it up on Sensor Tower and looking at the ads and then also opening up the, their app and downloading and playing it. It's the fact that they actually have the data from the monetization side and also have data from the user acquisition side and then also ha distinctly have studios which can spin up clones. And that, I mean, it's just, I mean, whether or not it's like the right thing to do, I mean, you know, I think capitalism doesn't really care what's the right thing to do, right? It's just a, right. a very, you know, powerful thing to do from an economic perspective you know like it's a really it's a strategy that's going to work and as someone else who's you know the other people who are operating the ecosystem we just need to be cognizant of that as we move forward awesome 
Yeah. Why don't we head into our main topic? Yeah, absolutely. So main topic is a large one uh, today. So uh, got quite a few angles to talk about. Um, I'm titling this user acquisition automation and the future of UA operations. We can maybe come up with a snappier title down the line. Um, but we have uh, James here. And James, I just really like for you to start off, Just uh, we're going to sort of do back and forth. We'll talk about a bunch of different things here. But just to start off, do you want to talk a little bit about you, who you are, um, what BubbleEye is, what you do, and what you do there? Yeah. So uh, I'm James and uh, co-founder of BubbleEye. We actually started in Beijing, and we've moved um, since to Taiwan. Taipei, Taiwan. We're based here. We do R&D here. We now have sales offices in Europe, and we'll probably be opening an office in California soon. Uh, what we are is a suite of automation tools. Um, we're used by games and apps, uh, and we help provide them a number of tools, such as budget allocation across many different networks. This could be also be done at a very granular level, right? So we'll also be helping people to place budgets across different source apps or publisher apps within networks. Uh, we also provide bidding algorithms, predictive LTV, campaign management, uh, consulting, you know, iOS 14 services. And we package this all inside of a actual dashboard that people log into. You can see all of your campaigns that you're running across, across many different networks um, and that any of the buttons and actions you press on this dashboard will then have an effect on the network. Um, We've been doing this for a few years and we kind of uh, came out of this from being a DSP in the past. Um, so we kind of have that in our blood to try to um, you know, make changes at granular levels, but we saw that there was a big opportunity to help do this, especially with the SDK networks such as AppLovin, um, IronSource, Unity, and we work very closely with these networks to uh, help them develop APIs and to work on best practices for campaign management. Great. Yeah, you kind of answered a few of my questions there, and we've used the Bubbleye tool in the past, and I, you know we've we've seen success with it across a couple of different clients in a couple of different contexts. And so, you know, it is a, it is a very powerful tool. Yeah, um, I think that's that's something worth really driving home. There's a lot of products on the market right now that um, promise some kind of UA automation. Um, We've explored and tested a lot of them, both individually and, and at Uptick, and we also, you know, build internal solutions for for parts of that puzzle. But yeah, it's actually a really good tool, and this thing actually works. And so that's that's part of why we're happy to have James on to talk about this, and um, can actually like in good faith like say, yeah, this is a, a good product worth trying. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so one of the questions I had out the gate was what sort of segments of traffic, you, you, talked, you sort of talked about this, um, and I think you said basically reward video is what you guys focus on. And just like make sure I've got that right. That is basically the bucket of traffic that BubbleEye specifically targets, correct? Oh, sorry. No, we don't. Uh, we, we work with SDK networks um, as well as, uh, you know, some of the self-attributed networks and things like that. But we do not focus specifically on video. Uh, we actually are very agnostic to what kind of creative people like to use. But we do focus on what types, what the creative types are in the sense that we will bucket those out into different um, bidding strategies or budgets. Um, we also allow people to, we're working on new tools for them to be able to see like the themes of creatives um, so they can kind of see which types of creatives are working best, which maybe sometimes is playable or sometimes is video. Uh, there's very few people doing any banner stuff now, but we also support that kind of stuff. Um, as far as which segments of traffic are well-suited to automation, I think that it is 
all about the size, right? So the bigger a your scale is, the more you can save time. So I think that it's not really about a specific segment that works. It's more that if you have many, many, many segments and every time you keep adding one, in terms of automation, it's a minuscule add, um, but it's a significant time save for a human. Right, so is it fair to say that you, you think that the value that you're driving is mostly around cutting down on human, you know, manual labor versus um, some sort of actual core differentiation of what like a human could do, or are you actually seeing that you think that there's actually incremental value that you're driving beyond what a human could do based on automation or based on like their manual operations? I mean, I think it's the same things that humans could do, but it's just that who wants to spend the time to analyze some small publisher that brought 20 installs across the last six months or whatever. Right, right. It's just so not worth it for a human to spend their time analyzing this. And, but if you have, you know, this implementation set up already to analyze this creative over time or analyze this, uh, you know, publisher at a very granular level for this app, for this geo um, on this network, um, it becomes very easy just to do it automated 24 seven uh, as the data is being received. Right. Um, so you, I guess I, we talked about the SEK networks. Um, you said you also have some automation that links into Facebook and Google, or sorry, SANS, I assume they were Facebook and Google. Can you talk about the automation? Because I don't think we've actually used that ourselves uh, on the, in the Kraken tool. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, what are the, um, the automation tools you have for SCAN or for yeah, SANS? There's, I, we assume that there's like a lot more limitations in how ways that you can affect uh, the self-attributing networks, right, James? Right. Um, well, actually, some, some of them are. So for example, like Tarpus is technically a self-attributing network. Mm -hmm. um, and there we do have like very high ability to control things. Right. There's also places like Facebook where you have a lot of ability to control what's happening, but um, we actually don't try to automate or replicate a lot of that stuff because it doesn't, it doesn't make as much sense in this to compare it to the um, other types of traffic that we can automate. Right. So what we do is we do allow people to visualize all of that data and on our dashboard and to manage those campaigns um, or we are working on tools for them to be able to manage those campaigns uh, at a high level. But yeah, as far as the like deep level um, automation, like for Google, there's nothing available for that. Um, you can manage budgets, you can manage creatives, but yeah, it is very black boxy um, and they have APIs for everything, but it's not something that you can dig into or, or make changes at a deep level. Right, you know? and just to explore that a little bit further, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, James, you're kind of at the mercy of what a given traffic source allows you to actually affect, right? Like, and and also where um, where that effect actually makes a difference. So um, to talk about some of when we're talking about SDK networks, talking about like Unity or Iron Source, within those networks, there's thousands of individual apps um, that ideally um, uh, a user is like placing individual bids on in some sort of informed way. So. Um, there's two things that that I think make a tool like uh, Bubbleize Kraken pretty relevant there. One is availability of data. Um, you can get that very granular data on each of those apps. And then the second is you can actually affect it. Like you can actually adjust the bid on each of those levels. Now, if we compare that to something like Google uh, UAC, which is the main way that we have to buy traffic from Google, you can't even see all the individual places that you're buying traffic on Google from. Like that data is not available in really in any way to a business. And then you also can't affect it on that level of granularity, even if 
if you could see it. App, uh, Google doesn't give you those means. So I guess just sort of gut checking is it is it are those the two kind of um, limitations that apply sort of like the 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 effect that a tool like uh, the Kraken can have on in these examples like Iron Source versus Google, or are there other um, considerations at play there as well? No, yeah, you're right. That's definitely the some of the biggest uh, you know limitations is whatever is available on the network. Um, but one of the things that you know can be leveraged is the ability as you start aggregating this data to you know analyze across different networks, and that's where you can um, you know what we try to help people do is not spend so much money on Google and Facebook, um, and really find the value in these other networks where you have. A little bit more control and you're able to you know if, if if you play if you work at it you can get more value from it than you could from facebook and google uh scale is not the same but it's still something that uh we try to help people with and i think one of the key things there is that if you have facebook and google to compare it does help people then to realize like you know if you, if you can pull that data out and see it in a way that makes sense that you can see that you know, Iron Source and Unity—they actually have traffic that can be better um, suited for certain types of games mm, totally. uh, than Facebook and Google. Yeah, and yeah. like the, the like quote unquote dumb nature of the traffic of you know rewarded video networks or SDK networks are what enables you to pull enough levers to actually gain incremental value there. Yeah, yeah. I, I quite, actually, I have a question for for both of you guys. So. Um, with you, you mentioned a, a interesting thing there, James. Like you get basically giving giving um, developers ways to not spend solely reliant on Facebook and Google. Um, I, you can you can launch a campaign on one of those sources and sort of like let the algorithm of Facebook and Google sort of have its way. Like you upload some decent creative, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. But like there's a chance that it works. Um, have you guys? I, I'm asking. Both of you guys touch these networks a lot in your day to day. Have you guys ever seen a case where an app is launched on one of these um, uh, SDK based networks, Unity, Vungle, Iron Source, et cetera, and it's actually profitable without a serious optimization process happening, without like a bunch of micromanagement, either human or driven by automation? Basically saying, can you just do a run network bid? And yeah, like can you just. Hey, Iron Source, launch this campaign and like have have it be profitable with no um, optimization workflow in place. No, I, I would, don't know. I would know, but I would turn that around mm -hmm. and I would say that you know there's quite a few people that you know do the same thing on Facebook and Google and mm -hmm. blow through a lot of money and you know they are not making that money back. True. Mm -hmm. Totally agreed. Yeah, I mean, I guess like plug for doing UA optimization. Like, yeah, you can't just launch anything and hope that it works. Um, yeah, what, what, I guess like at a, at a high level, you know, some of these networks do have, you know, so we're talking basically everything we're talking about. And actually, I'm curious if this is not true, James. We're, we're basically seeing most of this is like CPI traffic. Is that correct? I mean, do you guys touch any of the, the uh, bidder, the ROAS bidders? Yeah, CPE. Um, sure. We would like we do have the ability to do CPM, and we're going to be moving into that as uh, um, you know as iOS 14 is coming out. But uh, so we actually used to do just CPM. We prefer CPM, but most of the networks are less ready for handling CPM um, for whatever reason. I think it's just because as an industry, CPI is usually a little bit more accepted. Well, and then after iOS 14, though, we're seeing at least something some networks wanting to move back towards the CPM model. So maybe it's your time yes. to try. Yeah, we're ready for that. <laughs> so I actually have a, a, a related question. Um, James, you, you probably run into this all the time of 
Um, you know, five years ago, none of the networks themselves, um, none of these smaller networks had their own meaningful algorithms for optimization. Now most of them have something. So for either a client uh, or pot potential um, bubble light client or, or for the ad network, what do you, how do you respond in situations where um, one of those parties says, well, why would I use a uh, bubble eye or a third-party optimizer? Unity's got their own ROAS algorithm or IronSource has their own algorithm, uh, ROAS algorithm. Why wouldn't I just use that? How do you respond well, to that? Yeah, so we used to see ourselves as you know having a lot of uh, algorithms that we use to bid on networks, but really now we've built out a suite of tools that we use um, on the networks. And so when people say they want to use an optimizer, the answer is, yeah, that sounds great. Um, you know, it's, it's just one of the many things that we do with our clients. Uh, for whatever reason, a lot of the networks also often like to run campaigns set up like they have a feeder campaign, which we will optimize that. And then they'll have a, uh, a, a network optimized campaign, which the network um, algorithm handles. But I'm not really sure if that strategy, I mean, that's usually the recommended strategy on several networks now, but I and James, can, that, you, um, can you clarify what you mean by a feeder campaign? It's what we consider running, yes. right? Yeah, so it'd be like a run of network campaign that's running and supposedly feeding data to the network's internal algorithm so that it can then do the targeting. Um, Basically, they got you bidding against yourself and are telling you it's good for you. I don't even know if you're bidding against yourself. I, the part I think is kind of suspicious about it is that, um, you know, they the, 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 the way that they are bidding on the networks is going to be targeted per user, right? They're gonna be right. having these highly targeted ads that are being shown to high value users, which is really, really a great way to, uh, you know, get really, really high quality users coming for a campaign. But how is that helped by having a random campaign sitting there spending a lot of money on less valuable users? All right, James, let's make some enemies. Um, what, are the, what are the networks that are recommending that this is a good strategy? Oh, I wouldn't say, but I, I mean, I think that it's also the kind of thing that it clients also want to do that, right? Because the other problem is that if you have these highly targeted campaigns running, you can't get enough volume from them any, anyways, yeah. right? So the first thing you're going to do is like, how can I get more volume? It's like, well, you can start another campaign that doesn't have these restrictions and can, will have a little bit lower quality uh, users coming in, but does provide the volume that you're looking for as a UA manager. Very diplomatic of you. Yeah, I'll, I'll be less diplomatic going one of my, I'll do my short version of my mini rant. So like one thing that I always uh, am talking to people about is like who owns the algorithm and what are its incentives? So I think the nice thing about um, potentially using a third party optimizer where um, they are not the person selling the inventory is that party um, be you know be that uh, a, a bubble eye an uptick any any other entity that's a third party um, usually they're focused on like what is the optimal outcome for their client um, and any workflow or algorithm they make is focused on that whereas if you know unity iron source facebook whoever is designing an algorithm for their ad platform the number one priority for that is to maximize the value of every impression sold. That is a very different leading objective than maximizing the profitability uh, of a campaign for, for an advertiser. So you just have to sort of follow the money. And I, I know James is, is trying to be dip diplomatic, which I appreciate, but um, 
that's that's one thing I always ask people to think about critically before trusting wholly um, your optimization process in the hands of any ad network. And this is not calling out any of them in particular. It's just the nature of the business. Their business is selling ad impressions for the maximum value. So that's one reason I encourage people to at least explore and test either building something internally or using a neutral third-party solution for your optimization strategy. Yeah, and we something too. Go ahead, James. We got into this by talking about Google, Facebook, right? And they are the same thing. Of course, they don't use this language, like they don't have an totally. optimizer running on your campaign, but that's what they're doing, right? I mean, they are trying to find that balance between profitability for them and profitability for their clients. And they're going to err on the side of profitability for themselves. I think the automation tools though, it's really important that it's not just the bidding strategy, right? It's gonna be the budget allocation, the ability to watch the trends over time, um, you know, the ability to manage your creatives, all these other tools that we can add on to a campaign management strategy that really help. Um, not necessarily just the, you know, which which algorithm did you choose totally. to bid uh, on publishers? That's that's definitely something that I think is um, far sort of like underappreciated in the world of UA. Like um, UA or we usually just refer to growth marketing is there's only so far you can get by pulling the levers within a net network. Like maybe you can get a relative, I don't know, like to say 30% improvement in performance. You can get a lot bigger improvement performance than that on a project in general or on a set of campaigns, but you have to go outside of just what you can affect with those levers. What is, you know, what's going on with the app itself? What's going on with your app store? What's going on with your marketing creative? Um, and, and how can you uh, look at that across your portfolio? Um, and yeah, there's, there's so much more to UA than just adjusting the bids within a network. And I think a lot of times that gets, gets lost in the conversation. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, it kind of segued nicely into a question I, I had on my list, which was what part of the UA process is difficult, will be difficult or impossible for us to eventually automate? I have an answer. I'll, I'll go on that. Okay, what's your answer actually? Well, I mean, creative production, I mean, people are trying, but I guess, I mean, Warren, I think we have a, a it's always horse. Bad. It's a, always bad. <laughs> we, we have a horse in this race because we do really high touch, you know, high value creative production. And I mean, we've seen a lot of creative and it seems to win out over time, you know, like we have plenty of data to validate that as well. I mean, across multiple yeah. clients. But, but, but Xander, at the same time, the reason that we, we, we don't have that stance because we have a creative team, we have a, a, a creative team because automated sure. creative production sucks. Like Uptick's a pretty new company. Like if you could easily do automated creative production and it ruled and it had great performance, cool, job's done. Um, but all of the automation tech to, to date, like the best you can do is like automate the process of moving around different clips and reordering them in different ways. Um, but yeah, originating creative ideas in any kind of pro programmatic way has always fallen short to date, at least. James? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I, I would say that creative is, is, you know, a very complicated place for any kind of automation to be. But I'd also say I'd never underestimate the ability of humans to find ways to automate things. Um, and it doesn't mean that as you automate things, there's less things to do. I actually feel like you know, as you automate things, it just means there's more work to be done. There's more things that need to be managed. Um, and what it does sure. is it increases the scale that you can operate at. Uh, one idea I have, it's kind of like a random throw out there, is that I love the playable in-app uh, games that you can play inside of, uh, or sorry, the playable ads that you can play inside mm -hmm. of games. And I've always thought that would be a really cool way to kind of optimize your next game that you're going to build is you basically build a small playable game, you put it out there, people play the ad, you have such a fast turnaround to say whether or not people are interested in this game, and then you go out there and build the game. 
right? You start with the ad and then build the game after you've uh, tested it in with playable ads. That's an interesting thought. I mean, there yeah. is a lot of constraints around those playables. Like they're not very performant, but I think you could, we've done stuff like this. Like, so we've made, we've like spoofed games in our, within our ASO tool to like basically validate them before. But you're saying like, let's take a step even up like one step even higher. I guess we were running ads for that too, weren't we, Warren? But we're basically yeah, take yeah. one step even higher and just say, hey, let's make the game in a playable, have them play for 30 seconds. I think there are a lot of issues with that, but it is a very, very interesting thought. <laughs> yeah, what, what our uh, partner was trying to do is they're trying to make a development decision. Essentially, like they knew the skin they wanted for a game, like the world it was going to be in, but they didn't know what gameplay model. So we worked with them to like develop the footage for like essentially like three different types of game. We made ads that showcase that footage and then designed these like app stores. So basically you could go all the way towards clicking install. And then we saw how the target audience re reacted to those three different game profiles with essentially the same art and everything else is the same other than the core like gameplay loop shown and expressed in the, the app store and the ads. So got interesting learnings that way, but I, I do think it still doesn't tell you what's gonna be the most successful. Like it'd be super interesting if there's a way to have like a snackable version of the app. Um, without doing full app development. Um, playable well, ads may or may not be the right format for that, but I think it's, I think a way to do deeper engagement testing before designing an app is super interesting. TikTok for hyper-casual games, you just swipe and you play, and you have a oh open hyper-casual game that you can play live on demand. Do we, just, we should just, <laughs> should we just design that app and just make a trillion dollars? All right, no one take that, okay? <laughs> Facebook's sure. so close to it. They have the Facebook, uh, I don't know what it's called, Facebook gaming platform or whatever that is. And it's so close, but they have to click and they treat it like a YouTube thing where you got to like, oh, click, see the name of the game, click the name of the game. Oh, do you want to play? Yes, I want to play. And then, and then you see the gameplay. It's like, why not just open the gameplay? Let people, you know, just start experiencing it. Yeah, they get a lot going on over there these days. Um, okay, a few other few directions we can take this. I guess one question is like, you know, we think a lot about automation. James, you probably think a lot about automation, it's fair to say. Is there any, are there any places that we look in the space? When I think about who's doing automation right, I think about, I mean, like obviously people like Facebook and Google, there's a number of other networks out there who are, you know, doing campaign automation well. Um, basically, you put in a, a robust target or something, you can get back users to an extent. You know, I think people are spending a lot of time focused there. What are the other parts of the UA process where we should be focusing on automation and who's doing it well. And I think Warren, you can you're allowed to plug this right now because I did, I did call it like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, whatever. I don't, I don't think, you know, Uptick does a lot of work in the series, but we don't need to focus well, on Well, I mean, so hold on, then I'll plug it. So I think that one thing that we do do is app store optimization, automation, optimization, mm -hmm. which we have a tool for that. And there's very few people who have tools for that and do it the way that we do it. So we don't need to do a huge plug there, but if you're curious about AS, automated ASO, you should come talk to us. And then, but so that aside, like what are the other pieces of the process that we should be automating and who's doing it well? Anyone? Uh, I, I mean, I, you kind of had the answer in the question, at least my answer, which would be that uh, I'm very keeping an eye on like TSPs, networks, um, because I, that's where a lot of the automation that we see as um, interesting is happening, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, because they own the, the rails, um, any automation they add can have like an interesting effect that either limits what people can do or enables them to do more um, and as something that works across many different networks, right, we are always kind of keeping an eye on what the networks are, are doing. Um, and then conversely, I'm very curious to see like how DSPs handle um, as iOS 14 is coming out. 
they're already buying from many of these uh, networks and you know, what are they going to be doing over the next couple months as uh, IDFAs go away? Are they going to be more successful, less successful? Um, but I, as far as like other automation tools in our space, it seems like there's very few and the ones that did exist have often been acquired. Um, so it's, it's, I don't have anybody in, on, off the top of my head that I can think of right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was just gonna say my, my thoughts are fairly similar. Like most of the innovation does come at the end of the day, uh, as much as we were saying, you know, don't, don't put all your trust in the ad networks. They are also incentivized to make the process as efficient as possible. Um, so similarly, like we were kind of, uh, you know, speaking ill of like automated creative, but I think about things that like um, Liftoff has done to like um, com componentize uh, the, some of their their ads and test different iterations of 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 that um, to find like the optimal combination, uh, little things like that, or like um, Vungle was doing something similar with like interactive end cards. Uh, they had an initiative for that a, a while back, um, but the examples are pretty few and far between. Anything that comes to mind for you, Xander? Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on it. I mean, Liftoff does, you know, in terms of just the campaign automation, they seem to be the ones who have are most on top of iOS fourteen point five. Uh, you know, post scan automation. Honestly, I, I had a call with them this morning. I was pretty impressed with the products that they're they're building there. I'm also thinking about like you know, Acquire.io is one that we looked at a while ago, Warren. I know it got bought up by Adjust, but in turn got bought up by Apple. Then that product has got to be sunset. I mean, <laughs> uh, we tried to use it and it, it really didn't live up to live up to the hype. And there are a few other like you know, multi-network campaign op automation tools, but I don't think we've ever seen one that. It, it's like super meaningful that, you know, besides people on this call. Yeah. Well, I know for acquired, they like rolled it into the adjust dashboard and tried to make it um, like an, I, I believe like an upsell uh, with, within the platform. Um, yeah. They'd be curious what the future of that product is. I think that actually then maybe it's interesting to say like, why hasn't um, AppsFlyer or any of the other MMPs gone the way of trying to do optimizations in their, mm -hmm. um, on their dashboards. That's I've always point. thought that's something that they would do, um, especially after acquired IO was uh, acquired. But with iOS 14 now, it, it also seems like the MMPs are in a little bit more of a dangerous place where they could get squeezed. Um, and maybe they will have to start having more value adds for their clients. Well, right, if they had a useful automation tool, they'd be in a lot safer position. I think really the thing, I used to work at an MMP, I used to work singular, and you know, they, it just, it wasn't their core competency. And they were like really good at integrations. They were really good at data standardization. You know, they really had a really awesome data engineering team and, and you know, pro, but they, they just, their specialty was not user acquisition. And so they just, they never thought that, that was a place that they should focus because there's tons of stuff to do. Mm -hmm. We'll see now. I mean, I yeah. know they're, go ahead, Warren. No, I was just saying, it's a, it's a good point because the data itself, like the, the, right now the MMPs sell a commodity, which is clean, usable data. Um, and if their ability to do that uh, is is, def is deprecated, it's like, what, you know, why do you have that relationship? Why do you have that contract? So um, they'll definitely need to evolve. And, and I mean, there's kind of like two, two paths of this. One is one potential path kind of like going into iOS 14.5 again, one potential path is now it's so hard to work with the data. It's such a pain in the ass that like absolutely you need a partner that can just like get the piping clean. Um, the other is that uh, Apple decides ultimately to not play nice uh, with these MMPs or that they don't want them, they, they see them as like a, a, a necessary function in the industry. And you know they, they essentially make it impossible for the MMPs to, to provide much data 
value add. So then the MMP has to totally reposition itself. Um, I don't know, James, do you, is, is, is that kind of bifurcation? Do you, do you think similarly, or am I, do you think I'm off base here? Oh, no, I, I, I mean, what, so I, I have to pick up on what you just said about mm -hmm. the Apple um, and the MMPs, because I think it's very interesting that they did, the way that SK Ad Network got um, developed and implemented does seem like it was an attack against the MMPs. I don't think sure. that was actually meant to be like that. Um, but it is very weird, right? So it's sold as like, we prevent apps from tracking you, but I honestly don't think that, I mean, Facebook can still track 99% of the things I would worry that Facebook tracks me about, right? They still know sure. my name, they still know where I am, they still know all the things I've done. This has no impact on what Facebook can track or from a game's point of view, right? Like your game still can track what this user does and how, how they you know, act in the game, how much money they spend. Um, it's just this, the, the cross um, pollination of data that was prevented from happening, which had this huge impact on um, the MMPs because that's what their core competency is, is the attribution since there is no tracking, since there's no link that can have an ID inside of it. They're the ones that have been, you know, facilitating this, uh, this kind of like replicating an HTML link for everybody. And I, I, I think that Apple didn't meet, intend to do that. Uh, <laughs> my feeling yeah i think it's like sort of they were like trying to smack facebook and they missed it and hit a couple you know flies in the way and it's like apps flyer you know like literally you know like, like seriously i think that's it's literally what it is it's like you can either get in line or not i mean um it sort of segues nicely to a couple questions i think you want to talk about james which is like does you know we, we scan the the justification for scan is being batted. You know, people have said a lot of different things and, you know, it's really hard for us to know what Tim Cook and co were thinking about. But I think one of the things you had a question about uh, James is like, do you think that this is, I mean, I think we know that it's giving Apple an unfair advantage. Um, at least my, my take at least is that, you know, this is giving Apple an unfair advantage in their advertising. I mean, James, wh what are your thoughts on that side? Uh, I mean, it'll be remains to be seen whether or not it's legally considered to be an unfair advantage. Um, and, you know, what kind of actions are they going to take? You know, every day people talk about who Apple hired yesterday. Um, this, this ad executive is joining their team. Oh, they have this new uh, ad space available for people to buy on the App Store page. So it's very interesting to see like where this moves um, going forward. Uh, there's the case in Germany, which I think is already at the forefront, right? So they brought that antitrust um, allegations against uh Apple, I can't remember if it was Facebook and some other German agencies that brought that up. Um, but it'll really remain to be seen, I think, if Apple continues to try to build itself as a um, advertising platform. And I think the main reason they're doing that is that they have a 30% tax that they can put on every single app. And they've been looking at all this ad revenue, which is you know not taxed. And they're trying to tax that revenue, um, which... I don't know if that's fair or not, but I think that's really what they're going after is that, mm -hmm. that money. I mean, I'll go ahead and say it's not fair. I mean, I think that, you know, when it's the def definition of anti-competitive, if you basically cannot, if you are charging 30% tax and there's zero way for, and, and they Tim Sweeney at, at Epic is, this is his whole thing. This is why he, they're suing them. And they got into that whole lawsuit was because he's saying like, you're not actually providing 30% value. I mean, you, you can, you're, you're out competing on the iPhone and you're, you're able to sell charge a premium. And that's awesome. You should, you, you should be allowed to do that. However, your margin on the app store is like 75%. And that's because you're not actually doing, you know, you're not actually providing incremental value. And so, I mean, 
if you if you have thoughts about this, I highly recommend listening to any any of Tim Sweetie's talks about this exact topic. Uh, he had a good piece a year ago about the multiverse. We talked about this pretty explicitly, um, and I, I think that it's pretty it's pretty clear that you know they don't need to be charging thirty percent. They're doing because it's good business, and there's you know if they if they really wanted to, they could. could, could if they could want to justify 30%, they could open up the, the app store and say, hey, you know, anyone can install their app store and, you know, you should use ours because it's the best. They're not doing that on purpose. They're locking it down because they can. And that's that's it, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, it's it's interesting what um, James' comment about the the ad revenue being untaxed. I was just pulling up a, a fresh take of the top, top downloaded games uh, in the app store. And it's, as far as I can tell, all... You have to get down to maybe number, maybe down to Roblox at number twelve currently, before there's a game where it's not just almost entirely ad revenue, if not entirely ad revenue. So you have at any given time maybe the ten most downloaded uh, apps, which are often the bulk of the top. Sorry, the ten most downloaded games are often the bulk of the ten top downloaded apps, since games are such a huge component of the App Store. And Apple's effectively getting zero percent of that revenue if they're all. Um, in this this current push of like hyper casual games, if they're all ad revenue driven games, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, if they're not generating any revenue, if there's no IPs in those games, I mean, that's, that also explains the like mad dash over the last X Men number of years into hyper casual and like just these super ad heavy games is because you know it's potentially like cheaper revenue. Right. Uh, um, I guess one of the other things to talk about here is just. You know, conversion values is something that we talked about a lot. Uh, this is a little bit of a um, aside, but uh, I guess, James, I'm curious what you have thoughts here. If, you, if you've seen, what are the best uses you've seen for conversion values? And uh, do you have any thoughts there about how people can be expecting to use automation in the post iOS 14 world, um, specifically on the conversion value and how you're thinking about optimizations there? Um, I think that, yeah, I would, I would kind of hesitate to say like, what are the best practices or anything? Because it's still so, everybody's constantly changing what they're doing and it's, you know, something that I think is most important is that you're looking at it and you're attempting to use it. Right. Um, because if this attribution ability does go away, like, and this is, you know, the way that you're going to be able to track data for about your users, you need to really be paying attention because it's really hard to come up with a good way to um, track users. We have people doing all different kinds of things. Um, engagement models are very, very popular because it's very simple. Um, events are very popular. Actually, going way back to the beginning, on the AppSlayer dashboard that you uh, mentioned at the very beginning, they show that like 60 or 70% of their apps supposedly are using the revenue-based um, model. I find that very weird, and I'd be very curious to see like how they ended up with that number. I haven't seen anybody doing it. I think that yeah. the people who are trying to do it are really struggling, and they're taking baby steps to get there. Um, I think you can get there at some point, but imagining that it's very easy and that everybody's jumped into just, you know, using these 64 numbers to track every single possible revenue situation is really complicated and not, not an easy task for people to handle. I think you can start pretty simple though, right? You can basically just say, and a bid is worth a dollar. And then, you know, someone is worth, you know, there's really, there's basically really easy ways to get started. And, you know, if you think that D1 revenue is a good proxy for a valuable user, which, you know, a lot of people do, we use D1 ROAS a lot. It's like our first leading indicator. So if you can get a pretty accurate uh, shot at D1 ROAS, 
using that conversion value, I think it's, you know, it could actually be, it's not gonna be accurate. It's not gonna be like the true D1 ROAS, but it could be, you know, close enough that you could do optimizations on. And I think that, you know, this is, that is one of the tactics we're using for across a couple of clients right now. It's mm -hmm. just using the ROAS model, um, uh, revenue conversion model and optimizing towards C1 ROAS. Uh, that is, you know, part of our short-term strategy for optimizing in the post iOS 14.5 world. Yeah, but a lot of games don't have like significant D1 ROAS that can be easily measured, point. right? Yeah. Or they have it, but yeah. it's very spotty and it's 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 hard to get. And so you start just any any hole there, you start having to find ways to fill it, and you only have sixty three other ways to you know say if somebody spent the dollar or not. And it, they run out really really fast. In my uh, experience, I, James, I want to reinforce something you just said that I find coming up a lot in my conversations um, with developers lately, which is. Um, there are these strategies that eventually we will all adopt once this system is fully implemented and we, we can, A, we can get all of the data and, you know, there's best practices established. Um, this doesn't matter today. Uh, today we're still working with very piecemeal data, um, the, uh, up until a couple of days ago, Facebook and Google literally weren't passing any of this type of data. They're the two largest traffic sources. So a lot of people are very focused on these kind of theoretical, uh, you know, how in the future are we going to use these 64 four bits most optimally? Um, that that doesn't matter yet. Like, yes, be thinking about that strategy, but but you can't use that to do UA literally today. So you also have to have an um, sort of a, how do we, how do we do damage control? How do we work in this in-between time that's going to last at the minimum for weeks, maybe maybe months? Yeah. Well, something kind of weird there is I, I have the experience that um, networks are putting up roadblocks for this as well. I think that they've seen that the person who probably will get in trouble for this situation is the MMP. And I think that they're kind of squeezing the MMP by saying that they are slow rolling the you know ability to use SK ad network data. They, you know, maybe you can't run campaigns unless you have certain settings set. And I think that they are hoping to push the industry into a situation where nobody ends up using SK ad network, which That's is definitely possible. But I think that if anything goes wrong, it's going to be the MMPs who get stuck with that. Uh, the issue. With that. Yeah. So question here. So you just referenced it. Um, you know, AAP, aggregated advanced privacy, I think is what you were just referring to, which is basically you can turn off AppsFlyer's ability or basically you can revert AppsFlyer back to the way it was like two or three weeks ago before scan rolled out. And you basically get all the probabilistic attribution and, you know, they'll basically, they'll pass all the data. You can turn it on so it'll pass all the data back to the network. How prevalent is that for you and your clients right now? Well, I mean, they're pressured into turning it. Uh, sorry, the, the, I always forget the on off. I mean, they're, they're, they're it's backwards, pressured yeah. into having yeah, to having it off so that they send more data to the networks. Um, right. And uh, a number of networks now will not run campaigns unless you have that button. I've had that same off. experience. Uh, I, that is the same experience I've had as well. And it's, it's interesting because basically what we're saying is we're just pretending that iOS 14.5 didn't happen, <laughs> which yeah. is... A, a, it's not great, but like what, I mean, at the end of the day, those are server-to-server -server integrations. What is Apple going to do? Go audit everyone? I mean, I should, you know, do mm -hmm. I say, do I just give them an idea? Like, <laughs> I mean, they might, like Facebook used to do that but right I, for their partners. At some point though, I kind of agree that maybe, I don't think it's Apple's place to try to say whether or not fingerprinting can or cannot be done since Apple has, you know, iOS and they can control the rules of iOS 
And if you're allowed to pull somebody's, um, you know, I can't remember the things now, but like your battery percentage or whatever, that should be allowed to, you know, you can do whatever you want with that once you're allowed to pull it. And Apple should decide whether or not you're allowed to access that information. Um, but as far as what you do with it, once you have it, there's no way that Apple should try to control that. You know, I can't say here's a number, but don't ever use this information again. It's, it's just not possible to, for them to control that. Well, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's absurd, right? It's like, you're not the government. And I think they like, they pretend that they are and, you know, sort of behave like they are, but I, I'm completely in agreement with you that that's just like a, it's an absurd stance. Yeah. I think the theme here is like at the end of the day, what the industry is asking for, I think everyone's open to like more privacy restrictions, but we just want to be clear what the rules of the game are. Um, make that very clear. Uh, make the data available to us and then let us do our best within those rules to figure out how to do our jobs and just sort of the lack of clarity around the rules is what a lot of um, stress in the industry is right now. Well, and I think just like to sort of put it another way, it's like it's it's beyond lack of clarity. It's using a monopolistic position in the industry to bludgeon the other players of the industry into getting your way. Like that's what's happening right now. <laughs> it's not because like the rules can change and they will change probably. Um, and also they're not sure. being uniformly applied from ad network to ad network. So like you can, like, you know, Facebook, you know, obviously is not asking for people to turn off AAP because they are under the scrutiny of Apple. Whereas all the other reward of networks are like, oh, we can get away with this. Let's get away with it. And then Apple search has their own set of rules completely. Right. So it's just, it's like, it's clearly not actually about user privacy. It's clearly about bludgeoning uh, people in the industry mm -hmm. to do what they want. And if I'm wrong, Apple, please come onto our podcast and tell us we're wrong and why we're wrong. <laughs> We're throwing out a lot I of fiery that, invites today. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, privacy is something that the problem is that also people don't know what privacy is, right? Like I'm a huge advocate for privacy, um, but I think that I have a different definition of what privacy is, right? Like I think that I don't mind having a random number that represents me being tracked around where I do care is when it connects to my real data. Right. But you th see things like GDPR, um, which actually gives more protections to the people that know your real name because they're owners of the data or whatever. And it, to me, it's like, that's where I don't, I don't want Google and Facebook to be able to, you know, freely have my, my real name, my real information, and then attach it to all this other advertising data. Whereas this advertising data that exists and just has, you know, fairly anonymous information, that's the stuff I don't mind at all. It's when it's attached to a real name that it becomes so powerful. Um, so I feel like we're really, in the situation where actually in our industry, almost none of our games track anybody's real information. Maybe some, sometimes they have email addresses and stuff, but it's pretty rare. And in my opinion, if that system stayed closed, it's very private, right? There's not a lot of ways to, to get anything out of that. And it's the, the link that needs to be broken is the link that you can connect a real name or real email address back to this um, private information that is currently anonymous. That's like basically impossible to, to to like the only way to do that would be to legislate it, right? And then make it illegal and then go after people who are doing it. Because from a technical perspective, mm -hmm. it's trivial. I can ask you for your phone number and your name and now I have it and I can tie it to everything you do. And there's no one yeah. along the chain besides the government who can stop you from doing that. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. But I, I mean I feel like there's ways to do it though that are based more around like the way that the internet I mean the like web internet works, where you can have links which literally track things from one place to the other but not necessarily that uh, you need to have an ID that is tracked the entire way, right? Yeah. So, but that's how so the I internet... can send you a, 
a, a URL link with an affiliation, you know, uh, ID attached to it of some kind or a click ID or whatever. And that you can track that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it, I can request to know what your ID is and then take that ID and look at all the other times I've seen it in the past. But that's exactly how the internet worked until I, I haven't. So I used to be in web marketing for a long, long time. And, you know, cookies are basically exactly what you described, right? And especially Facebook and these cross-site cookies, they're doing literally that, which is that they have it. I mean, Facebook pixel is on every single website and they can see they're mm -hmm. literally tracking you from website to website doing exactly the thing you described. Now, these standards are well, changing. I think that cookies are, you know, I'm, I'm also, I, I'm the opposite. I don't know much about web, but I think cookies are an actual uh, small file, which stores an ID on your browser's cache, right? So right. that would be like the way that the same as saying like an IDFA, which is an ID stored on your phone, which can then be accessed. So you can request to see the ID. Right. But also, so the way that the, you know, pixels have worked for the longest time is that they will have it on every, they can basically because they have it on every website, they can then ask their server, hey, is this this person? Yes or no. Right. And they can basically track you across everywhere else you're going. Right. right. My I mean, idea would be that, uh, sorry, we're really in the weeds, but I love this. <laughs> uh, so my idea is, is, is it, so like the cookie list, the, the coming cookie list feature of web browsers should be what phones should also be trying to emulate. So that style. So you have the ability to um, track across links. And you can have a pixel on a web page, but that pixel only has access to the information um, on that web page and that browser, but not a cookie. There's no cookie, there's no ID. They can see whatever the link passed along, but they can't see anything on the page to request who is this user. So if Facebook said, you know, here I'm passing you user one, two, three, the web page can say, oh, I received user one, two, three. If somebody from Google clicks into this website, you know, from Google search or something, there's no information there about who this user is and whether or not they just were on Facebook and happened to Google the same information. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. So here, I'd, I'd like to give a sort of an, an kind of an ironic anecdote here. So the largest <laughs> company I ever worked at, the, the only time that the marketing org ever had any user's name uh, and personal information was when they put in their GDPR request. Um, so essentially they would have to, like when you file and to essentially have the company and all their partners delete all your data, you have to give all your personal information. Right. We were then required to reach out to Facebook, to reach out to all the other networks and say, hey, here's this person's personal information. They want all of their data deleted. It's a very weird turn of events where it's like, we didn't know, we'd never seen these people's names and, and email addresses in our, in our day to day otherwise until they want to delete their data. That's hilarious. It's hard stuff. It's not, yeah. it's not something that I think, I mean, I think we're all figuring it out together. It's not that I know the answers or anybody knows the answers. Right. And so problem is the legislatures really don't know the answers and they That's are true. really struggling to keep up with, um, you know, what's going on and, and how they should pass uh, laws that are protecting users' rights. I mean, people's rights. <laughs> Maybe both. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, we've kind of gone all over the place and I sort of expected that, um, but maybe we went even more so than I thought. Is there any other topics here around these specific or anything else that we want to discuss while we're here? I'm all good. Um, I've talked about all my, <laughs> my recently uh, things I've been thinking about. How about you, Warren? Anything else? No, I think we're good. Do you guys want to move on to App of the Week? App of the Week. Uh, all right, James, did you bring an app this week? I did. Uh, I'll preface by saying I'm not a 
a super active phone user lately, but I have been using Strava. Uh, I do a lot of cycling and I thought it was very interesting. Me and my friends, we did a uh, huge cycling trip and it was, you know, eight hours cycled up about 10, 12,000 feet of elevation from sea level to 3,200 meters. We get there, we finish it, we get to the hotel and we all sat down on our Strava and used it for an hour. And I just thought about how it has really gamified like life, right? That you can have these leaderboards and you're competing to get to the top of the leaderboards. And so you can spend all day doing something, but at the end of the day, it's connects into this much bigger world where I can compare myself to, you know, somebody from France who was here a year ago and see whether or not I was faster than this person. Um, and I just really absolutely love that kind of cross between real life and uh, apps. Yeah. Interesting. Warren, have you, have you ever used Strava? I've never used Strava myself. No, I'm, I'm looking it up right now. And sorry, sorry, James, can you give a, a, a quicker, a, like more high level summary of what Strava is? It looks like it's not just for biking. Oh yeah. So it's just for like, uh, you record yourself. So I'm going to go for a run, you record yourself. Um, and then you, it tracks all your, you know, your location or if you have a heart rate monitor on, but then what's really interesting is that they have kind of like a social aspect where if you're run, somebody can mark it as what's called a segment and a segment, you can then have a leaderboard attached to it. So say that you usually run along the riverside for this two mile stretch and there's a really steep hill. Those would all be broken into um, little segments. And then you can compare yourself to people from this year, people from today, people from um, all time and see how fast you are compared to, they, compared to them. Uh, they also break it down based on like weight classes and stuff like that. Um, okay. it's just very fun. And then it also does a lot of things where you can do, if you run with somebody else, they'll say that you ran with them and then it'll show you your route. Um, it's, uh, so it's very like a gamification of exercise. This is cool. Yeah. I, my, one of my new COVID hobbies was just like, you know, starting to run regularly. Um, is, is one of, is one of the functions of this too, James, like if you're in a new area, being able to like pull up a map and seeing what the, the popular routes for a run or yeah. bike biking. Is. I love it. That's they have cool. heat maps and it's literally mm -hmm. like a heat map of like, here's where the most common segments that people are running in and doing. So you can pull up an area and be like, I even use it sometimes just to say like, I don't know this area. I want to bike through it. How can I get through it quickly? And I see a heat map of like a really common place. It's like, oh, okay, that's probably not a lot of stoplights I can go through there. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, super Maybe. interesting. It's cool. Is it cool if I go next? I think my, some of my my app themes overlap with uh, with some of James. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is just in line with what I was talking about the last several weeks. So it's kind of like a lot of that's talk true. about tracking. All the talk about not tracking people digitally <laughs> and not only tracking people in the real world. <laughs> Cool. So, um, yeah, I'm, I am about to take my first, uh, vacation since we started, uh, we started uptick like what, two, two and a half years ago or something. And, uh, you know, first, 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 uh, big vacation. So of course, where am I going to go? Well, New Jersey, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that my, uh, my wife's family is from there, but, um, so I wanted to like do a little research and haven't done a big trip for a while just to see like what's going on with travel apps these days and like trip planning apps. Um, I landed and I'm using for our upcoming trip this trap called this uh, app called Wanderlog. Have you guys ever heard of it or used it? No, I've never. Uh, maybe I, is, is it is it like show you like a fog of war of the world and you can like? Nope. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, that's be a good app. So much wander fog. <laughs> it's Wanderlog. Uh, I don't know. That's a bad joke. Um, anyway, so uh, what you can do with this is essentially. 
Um, it, it, you can do group trip planning and you can kind of have all aspects of your trip um, in, in one app. So it's got the practical things like your, your flights and if you're staying at a hotel. Um, but it's good for just sort of like, uh, you know, I'm going to be in like small town New Jersey. I don't know exactly what we're going to be doing all the time. Um, so you can just kind of research and mark places of interest. Um, and then like there will be a map that populates. So if you're in a certain area, I've already got a bunch of places like mapped out that seemed interesting, like different pubs and like coffee shops, uh, the local like Magic the Gathering place, um, you know, like parks and things like that. And, you know, as you're as you're on your trip, you can pull up your map and just be like, oh, yeah, here's those things we're interested in. Um, and you can. And so you can, it's shared across a group. So yeah. Yeah. So like my wife and I are like planning this together and just like throwing on places that we want to check out. Um, and it has like an explorable section so it can give you recommendations for for the area. Um, but it seems to be just what I was looking for, which is just sort of like I just want an app to use for my trip to like, you know, have the flight stuff in there to have like interesting stuff that we might want to check out um, to kind of manage the schedule if we if we need to and, you know, like put an itinerary together. So, yeah, it's pretty cool for that. Um, I'll report back after our trip and see how useful it actually was. Um, but yeah, have you guys ever used a, a, any other kind of trip planning app like that? No, just but go what places. are the social features like in that? Like, can you talk to other people that you don't know? Uh, oh, like social features. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's a, an immediate. Well, actually, no. When you're planning your trip, you can make it public or you can make it closed mm -hmm. to a group. Um, so I did. I did ours uh, private. So that's one thing. TBD is like if you do a public trip, like um, are there social layers? It's interesting. I've always been way more non-planning of my travel. Very famous for famous internally, locally my family and friends to like fly into another country and be like, all right, I want to go north. <laughs> yeah. For, for better, or for worse. I'm at the point in my life where even like my fun time is like strategically planned out for like, okay, I'm going to, you know, this 45 minutes, like do this thing with this friend and this hour and a half, like play this game. I saw this uh, Chinese app from a few years ago. It was pretty cool. And you say what dates you're going to be in traveling in which location. And they just open up a group chat. And it's just a group chat for people that will be traveling from May 5th, May 8th oh, awesome. in uh, Cairo. And you can go and you're just in this chat room with all these people like, oh, I'm landing in Cairo. Oh, let's go out to this. Let's go to here. And it was kind of cool. All it was was basically a chat room with some notes and stuff that you can put on the side. And each, yeah. your chat room is only for people during that, that period of time. Nice. It's like digitalizing the hostel experience. It's kind of, it is actually yeah. kind of interesting. I would, yeah. I would do that. I like kind of don't love the hostel experience. I don't know why. I, I like, I like seeing a hostel. I just, it's so awkward for me to meet people. Maybe I'm just too, drew up to internet first, but anyway, interesting. That was interesting. Xander, you got an app this week? Mine is really weird this week. And I'll just go ahead and say, it's not what you think it is uh, off the bat. So. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so it's called Picture Mushroom. And, <laughs> and, okay, I see why you gave the disclaimer. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, what it is, is it's a, so it's a little bit of a weird backstory. Um, I spent a lot of time up in Mendocino and out there, there's a lot of uh, people who pick their own mushrooms. And no, that's what I'm saying. It's not what you think it is. It's like people who go and like, get like 60 dollar porcinis that are massive and you get them for free um and i was i was out doing this with friends and i don't have the experience to be doing this and i was worried i was going to kill myself um and so what i what this app allows you to do is you basically it has a bunch of information about different types of mushrooms and like uh, you know and you you pick them you can take pictures of it and you can like use it to one catalog the, the mushrooms you're picking but then two, it gives you like tools to help reference whether or not this mushroom, you know, identify what the mushroom is. And 
people who are, you know, if you've never gone mushroom, it's really important that you eat the right ones because otherwise you will die or even like trip balls, depending on which one it is. Most likely die though. And so it was just a, it's a tool that I used um, a couple of times when I was out mushroom hunting just to make sure I was, you know, eating something that was relatively safe for me. They say do not use it for identification because you're going to die. Um, but I did do that anyway. Um, but I was actually out there and I found a giant king bullet, which is like literally like $70 of mushrooms. And it's like just like this huge, massive wow. thing. So it was, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, and I have pictures of it in this app. And so random one, I've only Did used a couple of times. Into the app again? Uh, picture picture mushroom. mushroom. It's very, yeah. Oh, okay. Let me check it out. Uh, yeah, strange. I don't know anything. I've only used it a couple of times. Um, like I said, not what you think, but this it was is, actually- This is the most niche app we've ever covered. And I kind of love it. This sounds like super, super fun, actually. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, but things don't go down this app. You need poisonous mushrooms and come at me because I don't want I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> at the same time, if you were in a situation where you needed to identify if a mushroom was poisonous or not, it seems like it'd be much better to use this app than to roll the dice. <laughs> yeah, and that's delicious. It was probably the best mushroom I've ever had. So like I got I got to call them out one thing though. A picture mushroom, you got to work on your ASO. It's it's got my number one pet peeve in their screenshots, which is it's a picture of a phone inside the screenshots. And it's like <laughs> yeah, we all know it's for the phone. Like we're in we're in the app store. Get your get your ASO game in check, picture mushroom. Okay, well, that was our uh, longest episode of App Talk so far. Uh, James, if anyone wants to get a hold of you or take uh, Bubble Eye for a spin, how can they do that? BubbleEye.com, and you can find me, James O'Claire, on LinkedIn, and uh, got a blue Bubble Eye shirt on. Very happy to talk to anybody, and I love chatting about privacy. I love talking about uh, campaign optimizations and automation, so... Feel free to hit me up even if you just want to chat. Yeah, and I'll just give you guys a, a extra plug and shout out. Um, the 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 Bubble Eye Kraken tool, which is the tool that uh, we've used of theirs, it's it's really great if you have smart UA people, but they just kind of need more arms. Um, and uh, it's a great way that you can kind of scale a, a smaller UA team to be able to do more with a small team and to have the optimizations run more frequently and more more accurately. Um, as James said, you know, there's a lot more to the work that they do than that product, but um, that's just the aspect of the work that, you know, we can say we've tested and can vouch for. So definitely check it out. Yep. Cool. Warren, do you want to take us out? For sure. So uh, as usual, today's episode of App Talk was brought to you by the team at Uptick. So here at Uptick, we are a growth services and technology company. We basically partner with app developers and help them scale their apps profitably, either by licensing our tools, such as our ASO automation tool, or by utilizing our growth services team, which uh, Xander and I are part of. And in that case, we're helping them with their creative development, their UA, um, their predictive data modeling, and essentially every other piece. Uh, we're kind of like a bolt-on marketing org with that part of the company, as we describe it. So uh, if that sounds interesting to you, and we can be of service, please reach out to us at uptick.com. That's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. Sweet. Talk soon.